Good morning, church. Our scripture reading today comes from 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17. Please follow along with me as I read. When the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, the one who is all-faithful, almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful. Lord, we stand in awe of your grace that you have lavished on us as people. And this picture that we're going to see today in 2 Samuel 7 vividly displays your grace in our lives and a promise that you made to David. Guide us as we go to this text. Lord, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Thanks to Pastor Michael for covering the last two weeks. Uh, we are continuing our study of the life of David. This fall, we will look at 1 John, which I'm excited about uh, for several weeks. 
As you turn there, just a reminder that tonight at 7 o'clock at the center, Ben Babion, our director of worship, will be leading a discussion on why we choose what we choose in the way of music, style of music. And if you're interested, we'd love to have you come. I think it's rather unique for a church to to lay that all out, to, to really think through. And the elders have spent a lot of time prayer along with Ben, and I'm excited with the final product, and I think you will be very pleased. God is on the move at CBF. You know that. There's some exciting things happening. Baptisms are this Saturday, and I know there are a couple that are still praying about that or maybe waiting till the new building, but if you're interested in participating, please see me. Don't worry, we're going to record that, and as we've done in the past, those will be shown on the 30th of July, so you can see and hear some powerful words of what God is doing in people's lives. Next Sunday at 8.30 in the morning is a membership class. So if you're interested in knowing more about who are these crazy people that meet at the high school, we'd love to share God's, uh, what he's been doing in and through this body of believers and where we're heading. and would love for you to consider joining uh, this body of believers. Well, 2 Samuel 7, and you just heard the first 17 verses is what Walter Brueggemann said, it's the most crucial theological statement in the entire Old Testament. Wow. One Old Testament scholar stated, Robert Gordon, it's the ideological, ideological summit in the Old Testament as a whole. If we were to gather a group of Bible scholars and say, give us one text of scripture that's so theologically rich in the word of God. No doubt they'd give us the resurrection of Christ. They'd give us the the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. They might give us the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. But 2 Samuel 7 would definitely be given. It is crucial. Because God is making, as we're seeing here, a covenant, a promise with David that is irrevocable and has eternal weight to it. It will reverberate throughout the Old Testament and into the New all the way to the book of Revelation. These words spoken here to David in 2 Samuel 7. We see at the very beginning in the first seven verses, David is desired to build a house. Poor David. He tried to move the ark. That had some problems. Now he wants to build a house. And we see that here. It says, king, the king settled into his palace. I love that term there. Uh, Hiram and company have left. They completed the job. The interior decorators are done. The landscapers have put the mulch down. I mean, it looks great. We got it. He settles down, which tells you what? There's peace. He doesn't need to be on the battlefield. And then you can look at pottery from ancient Israel. And the, the pottery during this time frame becomes very ornate. Why? Because they have the time to, to, to spin, to decorate, to paint the ceramics, etc. And the key is in the next phrase. For the Lord gave him relief from all his enemies. It's the Lord that's given the rest. And we know that. David even said that when he fought Goliath. The Lord goes before me. The term rest is theologically significant. It's what God promised to the Israelites when they left Egypt. It's what he told Joshua in the conquest. I will give you rest. And that is the least that they have had. The judges, what a nightmare. 
right? Enemies coming in, the Edomites, the Philistines. Uh, it's been crazy. King Saul has not seen rest. Now under David's reign, 2 Samuel 5, if we went back two chapters, we see a huge defeat of the Philistines. It's a game changer. And it says here, the Lord has given David rest. And so we're told, the king said to Nathan the prophet, that's the first time his name has appeared in the scriptures, and he plays a key role later in our study of 2 Samuel. He says, look, I'm living in a palace made from cedar. We know this Hiram built it. By the way, you can see the ancient ruins of David's palace today. If I take you to the city of Jerusalem, pretty significant. Anyway, that's a side note. But we're said it's built with cedar while the ark of God sits in the, in the middle of a tent. And so David says, I have a great idea. I'm going to build a house for the ark. And Nathan, a prophet of God, says, you know, that's a great idea, David. I love it. And God says, no, that's not a good idea. So notice what God says. He speaks first to Nathan, as you would expect the prophet. Nathan, we're told that night the Lord's message came to Nathan. And he said, no, 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 no. This is not, this is not what I intended. Now, this is key here. Let's unpack this a little bit. There are three things I want you to see in these next several verses. First of all, how does God address David? Notice what he says to him. Well, he addresses via Nathan. He, he calls David my servant. That will be key. Underline it. You're going to see it several times in this text. Ten times, actually, in chapter 7. David is referred to, or he refers to himself as, the servant of the Lord. That's key. It's only used of three other people thus far in the Old Testament. Abraham is called a servant of God. Moses and Caleb. And now it's given to David. Notice also what the Lord says about himself. Don't miss this. Notice what he says. This is so rich. This is just great. He says, go tell my servant, verse 5, this is what the Lord has said. Do you really intend to build a house for me? Now watch what he says, what the Lord tells Nathan. I have not lived in a house from the time I brought the Israelites. I brought the Israelites up from Egypt to this present day and said, I am traveling with them and I'm there with them, living with them. It's been 300 years since they crossed that Red Sea. And Yahweh, the Lord, says, I've never left them and I'm still here with my people. The irony here is there's a play off the terms in the Hebrew. The irony is that with the, he says the Israelites carried the tent, but it was really the Lord that carried the Israelites through this whole process. The Lord is not confined to a building he was with the Israelites in the Old Testament, and I would argue he is with his people today. What did Jesus state when he ascended in heaven in Matthew 28? And lo, I am with you always until the end of the earth. What a comfort, right? <laughs> if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Lord is there. He is present. On the deathbed, he's present. When you're with the doctor and you're told you have cancer, he's there. When you, you, your phone calls from a child who you have who's, who's wayward, has made some horrible decisions, he's still there. And, and David needs a reminder first from the Lord to say, hey, I don't need a house, David. I've been fine. I've been there with you. It's later that 
we're going to see here Solomon, David's son, who builds the temple. And at the dedication, Solomon states, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Wow. Even Solomon knew. You don't need this, God, but we're doing this. And then notice what, so the Lord says some things about himself, but then notice what he says to David. The, the Lord tells David, you're not building the house. And he gives three reasons. One of them is not listed here. It's later. Or we can also find it in, in Chronicles, First Chronicles. The Lord did not need one at this point. He didn't need a house. Secondly, he tells David, I never told anyone to build a house. And third, David, you're not building it because you have blood on your hands. You're a warrior. I need someone who has only known peace to build my house. It'd be inappropriate. Now, keep in mind, this is not a question of sin. Sometimes I've, I've heard that said here with David. No, no. David's intentions were very good. In fact, 2 Chronicles 6, we are told that his intentions to build the house was good. It's just not that what God wanted. The Lord had a different and far greater plan, as we're going to see here, for David. Why does God still honor David? Because in, it's the basis for why David wants to build a house. It's so not that his name, David's name, could be exalted. Oh, look what the king did. He built a temple for his God, like all the Near Eastern rulers. No, 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 no. It was so that God's name could be exalted. And for that, the Lord honors David. He humbled himself. Now, lest you think that David is going to become despondent, I mean, he's already discouraged. I mean, he's trying to do the right thing, and this is not what the Lord wants. Look how the Lord responds to him in verse 8. So now say this to my servant David. This is what the Lord of, now watch this, heaven's armies. That seems like a strange title, and it's going to occur several times in the text. It's what David said in 1 Samuel 17, when he's faced with the Goliath, he says, you know who I serve? The Lord of the heavenly armies. And I think God, being gracious as he is, is reminding David, don't forget, I'm the Lord of the heavenly armies. You know that. And as one who is the Lord of the heavenly armies, I've gone before you with Goliath. We're told in, in 2 Samuel 5 that David grew in power because of the Lord of the heavenly armies. And it's also the title that was given to the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, turn back to chapter 6. Let's just look at this. 6-2. Chapter 6, verse 2, we're, we're told that they're to bring the Ark, which is called by the name of the Lord of heavenly armies or heaven's armies, who sits enthroned between the cherubim. That's the one who goes before you, David. And so the Lord says to David, don't forget, I'm the Lord of the heavenly armies. I took you from the pasture and from your work as a shepherd to make you leader of my people. <laughs> what grace. Who is David? His little shepherd kid with acne. Watching a few sheep. And God said, no, I want you. We're told in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he's called you. Wow. He 
says, David, I chose you. I went before you. And I love that he uses the title because it's a reminder. I was with you wherever you went. And I defeated all your enemies before you. You didn't take down Goliath. I did. Now, I will make you as famous as the great men. Now, we'll get to this. The Lord makes several comments here. But he starts off with, don't miss this. The mighty Lord is stating, I am with you, David. From the sheep fields to the battlefields. From Elah to the spring of Engedi. From the Goliaths to the Naboths. I have been your God. I have gone before you. Don't forget this. This is a great comfort to David. And we're going to see that. But this is key. And reminding David of all that he has done, he then enters into a promise. And I think it's saying, if I can do all this, I can do this. This is nothing. Because I'm the Lord of the heavenlies. I'm the heaven's army's leader. <laughs> now, I wish we had time to develop the Davidic covenant, which is what we're entering here, this promise that God makes to David. It's rich. Uh, biblically, systematically, and theology, uh, the implications for our study of the Old and the New Testament, the specifics of the covenant in light of the other covenants. Uh, we, we could spend all afternoon, all the way up till 7 o'clock for Ben's event, just dealing with the Davidic covenant and not be done. So we're going to scratch the surface just a bit today. But what I do want to highlight in our study of the life of David is the specifics of the covenant. Because it is vital to our understanding of First and Second Samuel. We're told here that David will have a great name. <laughs> it's just so ironic that David in trying to exalt God's name, God in his grace exalts David's name. The Lord will give David, we're told here in the text, and the Israelites relief from all their enemies. Wow. You have to remember, <laughs> they sat around the campfire hearing Grandpa and Oma talk about all the problems that the Philistines have given them through the years. And, and they don't have to go through that. You have peace. It's like talking to those who, who lived through World War I and World War II. It's talking to someone this past week. He said, my, my grandfather died in World War II, and my, grandfather, my grandfather's father died in, during that time frame. And it was so difficult. Uh, that's something we don't know today because of the, the, the place where we are in the way of peace. But that's what we see here in, in the Lord's promising David and Israelites' relief. He also tells David, notice in verse 12, you're going to have a son who will succeed you. He will continue the kingdom that I have promised to you and he will build the temple. I love that. So David, you're not going to get to do the temple, but I'm going to give the honor to your son to do that in your name. Kind of an idea. We're also told in verse 14 something very significant. Don't miss this. I will become his father and he will become my son. This is the Lord speaking. There's going to be this special relationship, this intimacy between God and the Davidic king. Later, in the culmination in the ideal Davidic king, it's Jesus. And what does the Lord state, the father, at the baptism? This is my beloved son. What does the Lord say at the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son. 
This relationship, this culmination as we see in the eternal son, Jesus Christ, is laid out here. And so God makes a promise that there is a unique relationship with David and his offspring. And finally, he tells David that you will have a house, a throne, and a kingdom that is eternal. Now, don't miss this. The house is the dynasty, the offspring. It, 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 it will be forever. Again, it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, which is mentioned here briefly in a second. There, there's a throne. In other words, there's a reign. There's a power as king forever. And there is a kingdom that's earthly, political, and at this, it's limited to Israel. But the, all of this is promised to David. Now, there is, a, there is one little piece in here that you don't want to miss. Because in verses 14 and 15, it says, When he sins, that is a descendant of David, I will correct him. And by the way, the word for sin here is not just, oops, you made a mistake. It is a serious sin. This is a loaded term in the Hebrew. When they have blown it, it says, I, I will deal with them. In other words, God's promise ultimately overrides the sins of David and his descendants. It does not nullify the covenant. The failures of Davidic kings that will follow, and there are a ton. It's like re reading a soap opera. I mean, it's just awful as we move into later on in the kings and the chronicles whose failures delay realization of the promise, but they do not invalidate the promise this is why when the Davidic covenant seemed to be going the way of the dodo bird, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, and there appears to be this interruption with no Davidic king reigning, Isaiah 11 says, don't miss this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. I mean, that looks like this tree has been chopped down completely. It's been eradicated, the Davidic covenant. And the Lord says, no, 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 no. A shoot will rise out, the increase of his government and a peace. There will be no end on the earth of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold justice and righteousness from this time forth and evermore. In Jeremiah, when Judah is and Israel demise of them and without the Davidic covenant, so it would appear, Jeremiah 33 says, the certainty of the Davidic covenant is just as sure as a day and night. The sun comes up, it goes down. Just as that is sure, so is the Davidic covenant. It will occur. The promise to David and his descendants is irrevocable. That is so key. The inability of the Davidic rulers to live and rule in accordance with God's demands ultimately should cause us to look forward to the ideal Davidic king who would one day perfectly satisfy those divine expectations. What does Gabriel say to Mary in Luke chapter 1? He, Jesus, your, your son, will be great. He will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. <laughs> it's seen in, in, in coming to fruition with Christ... Jesus is depicted as the ultimate son of David. And even his enemies in the Gospels understood him to be the son of David. And that Davidic throne will be occupied at the second coming of Christ. 
when he assumes his rule over Jerusalem. So go back to 2 Samuel 7. The Lord makes a promise to David. <laughs> you just paint grace over the whole thing. Wow. And look at verse 18. This text wasn't read. We're going to read this together. Let me read it to you. King David went in and sat before the Lord. <laughs> Don't you love it? <laughs> uh, I, I got to sit down. <laughs> that was heavy, right? Well, let me, let, me, let me soak this in. And he says before the Lord, and says, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you should have brought us to this point? I, uh, what do we bring to the table? And you didn't stop there, O oh Lord God. You have spoken about the future of your servant's family in this usual way of, is this your usual way of dealing with men, O oh sovereign Lord? The implication is no. What more can God say to you? Or what more can David say to you? I mean, I'm speechless. David hears all this. He understands the implications of what God has just told David via Nathan, the prophet. And he says, for the sake of your promise, verse 21, and according to your purpose, you have done this great thing in order to reveal it to your servant. Therefore, you are great, O sovereign Lord, for there is none like you. There's no God beside you. What have we heard is true. Who is like your people, Israel, a un unique nation on the earth? Their God went to claim a nation for himself and to make a name for himself. You did great and awesome acts for your land, before you, before your people whom you delivered for yourself from the Egyptian empire and its gods. You made Israel your very own people for all time. You, O oh Lord, became their God. So now, O oh Lord God, so he's rehearsing what God has done, and now he looks to the future. Make this promise you have made about your servant and his family a permanent reality. Now watch. Do as you promised, so you, not David, may gain lasting fame. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. The dynasty of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, have told your servant, I will build you a dynastic house. That is where your servant has the courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O sovereign Lord, you are the true God. May your words prove to be true. You have made this good promise to your servant. Now be willing to bless your servant's dynasty so that it may stand permanently before you. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken by your blessing. May your servant's dynasty be blessed from now on into the future. <laughs> David breaks out in song, naturally. And you look at this response, and there's, there's several things I want you to note here as we look at this text. First of all, a true recognition of God's grace and provision results, watch this, in humility. David sits down, think about this, he doesn't try to argue with God. As if, you know, it's like you, you sit with someone and the bill comes at the restaurant and you, oh, you t I'll take that. You know, in football, you didn't intend to. You're hoping they take the bill. Oh, no, I'll get it next time. And, and so you, you, you could kind of envision that with David. No, no, no. You don't see any of this bargaining. He doesn't seek to negotiate. And you can hear David. Lord, I picked out the perfect spot for you. You ought to see the views from on top of that mount. It's gorgeous. 
I mean, my house is down here. Yours is going to be up there. It's great. Mm -mm. He doesn't throw a fit. He doesn't try to play a power game with God. Nor does David appeal to his own needs and wants. There's a whole lot there. That alone for our culture. We live in an age where there's such a strong sense of entitlement. An attempt to twist God to fit our lifestyle or way of life. When the proper response should be what David says, God, who am I? How, how dare I question whether it's my gender, whether it's, you, you fill in the blank. You are a sovereign God, not me. Can you imagine a two-year-old sitting in the back seat telling the parents how to drive? There's probably a few who do. Uh, who are you? I can't even read yet. You laugh, but imagine the Lord. Who, who, who are you to tell me how I should orchestrate life? <laughs> Job, Job, in chapter 38, God takes out a paddle. And he comes to Job and he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Implication, nowhere. Tell me if you possess understanding. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or made the dawn know the place? And Job responds appropriately and says, I am unworthy. When Peter understood who Jesus is, he said, depart from me. I'm not worthy to stand before you. And David, when he hears this promise, says, who am I? And that's true praise flows out of humility. And this morning, have you submitted to the authority of the Lord in your life? In other words, have you, have you bent your knee to the sovereign God, the Lord of the heaven's armies? <laughs> have you come to know Jesus as your Savior? Do you have a relationship with him? He is not playing games. Neither should you. Perhaps you claim to be a follower of Christ. But the concept of servant is a bit foreign in your vocabulary. You've been fighting the Lord's leading. Whether it's anger over where you are in life or a grudge of unwilling to forego or forgiveness you fail to extend, a sexual habit you will not relinquish. This is the Lord of the heavenly armies. And he says, no one else but me. Eight times in this chapter, David will refer to the Lord as, oh Lord God. You won't find it anywhere else in First and Second Samuel. Ten times he refers to him as servant. But it's interesting when in reference to, oh Lord God, it's the same thing Abraham says when God makes a covenant with him. And the connections are huge. And I wish we had time to develop this. But the, the Davidic covenant is, is further blossoming of the Abrahamic covenant. And there's more to that. But think about it. We got issues of land and seed and blessing. It's all there. If David had refused to listen to the Lord, the outcome would have been horrific for David. The, the blessings would have been forfeited. And as we saw in last week, it was 2 Samuel 6, we saw what happens when people do not heed the word of God. Just ask the guy Uzzah who got struck by the Lord. He assumed his hand was holier than the dirt. 
They made a huge mistake because it's not. <laughs> a true recognition of God's grace and provision results in humility. Notice also in this prayer from David, a proper response to God's character entails praise. And boy, you see that, don't you? He breaks out in song. And I can tell you, you know when someone is, when the Lord is working in someone's life best, when they're going through trials and they can still praise the Lord. <laughs> and that's the idea here. Third, the basis of true worship is built on proper theology. David's theology is rich in this prayer, and I wish we had time to develop that. And I encourage you maybe later today, just look at the names he gives God or, or the, the attributes he ascribes to God in this. David exalts the name, and, and it comes from a theology that's oozing out of his pores. This is a guy who's, who's spent a lot of time with God and understands him intimately and knows the word. True praise, another thing we see here, calls for an alignment with God's will. An alignment that results in direction and purpose. Human logic, David wants to build a temple. That's great. But that is not what God had intended at this time. The Lord's ways are not always our ways, are they? You're going, thanks, Hophetus. I came to hear that. I knew that all along. When God says no, it's not necessarily discipline or rejection. It simply may be redirection. <laughs> it's also a reminder that the Lord doesn't call everyone to build temples. <laughs> and so in this midst, David accepts the Lord's will. In fact, he wholeheartedly endorses it. Later in 1 Chronicles, we're told David makes all the preparations for the temple. He didn't have to do that. He could have licked his wounds, sit back on it, and eat his baklava back in the temple and said, I'm done. Lord, have at it. I'm done. Uh-uh. I'm not raising a finger. But no. He unselfishly responds and, and seeks. Why? Because as we see it seen in verse 25, he's concerned about the Lord's glory. You may be sitting here this morning, I'm going to talk to some of our older members, seasoned members, but you may have had dreams that where you were hoping to accomplish X, Y, Z, but age is caught up. <laughs> You're moving slower and the energy isn't there. I love James Dobson. He said, about the time your face clears up, your mind gets fuzzy. It's probably true. I'm in the latter stage. It's real humility to do what David does. And he says, no, I'm going to prepare the next generation. We're going to look at his words to Solomon here in a little bit. But he says, Solomon, here's everything you need. Wow. I love this poem that was quoted by Chuck Swindoll. One by one, he took them from me. All the things I valued most until I was empty-handed, ever-glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highways, grieving in my rags and poverty, till I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. So I held my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches, till they would contain no more. And at last, I comprehended, with my stupid mind and dull, that God could not pour his riches into hands that are already full. You may feel that God has brought you down to the point Lord, I, I want to do X, Y, Z. I, I didn't think that was wrong. It's okay. The Lord has plans for those who faithfully serve. 
It may not be tomorrow. <laughs> it may never be never. It, it may be that you're going to pass that baton on to others and help them carry forth with what you had dreamed, what you had hoped for. Also in David's response, an awe of God and his provisions results in boldness. I love the end. It says, so boldly I can say to you, Lord, because why? He, he knows who the Lord is. God said it. David believes it. I mean, think about it. If it had been anybody else that told David, no, you can't build the temple. I wonder if Nathan was a little concerned not to tell David. No, don't do that. Um, no. David had reason. to. He could have dismissed those. I mean, it's like Mary Poppins said. You know, it's a pie crust promise. It's easily made and easily broken. Not God's. They're not pie crust promises. Why? Because as we see here, and it, it dovetails off this in verse 27. Notice what he says. He states, O Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, have told your servant, I will build your house. Thus it is so. <laughs> Again, that's what David told Goliath. He said to the Philistine, you're coming against me, but I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord of the heavenly armies. Well, no doubt, 2 Samuel 7 is a promise given to David. The implications, obviously, we benefit from. But do you know there's over, four, some say there's over 14,000 promises in the scriptures. God has, in fact, one, one Woodhouse states in his commentary, the golden thread that holds the whole Bible together, the central message that makes sense of all the details is this, God has promised and so at the bottom of your notes and the implication, I think there's a few things to take with us as we look at the promises of God and, and, and then apply that to us. A, the certainty of God's promises is based upon God's character. He's the eternal God. He is the one who can do it. And I, I love it. Twice this chapter talks about God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. Why? It, it, it's a... It's an indication this God can do this. If he can defeat the Egyptians, he can take care of you. I love Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk 3, 17, 19 says, When the fig tree doesn't bud, and there are no grapes on the vine, and when the olive trees do not produce, and the fields yield no crops, when the sheep disappear, this is a bad day. If you're living in an agricultural society, this is it. I mean, you're toast. I, verse 18 says, will rejoice because of the Lord. <laughs> I can trust him. I will be happy because of the God who delivers me. Because his promises are based on his character and on who he is. And the sovereign Lord is the source of my strength. He gives me the agility of a deer. He enables me to negotiate the rugged terrain. I love that. If you're struggling with what the Lord has promised or you're in a situation where God's words seem to be a bit shallow or fleeting, let me challenge you. Pull out a three by five card and write four words. Lord of heaven's armies. Lords, the Lord of heaven's armies. If you add the, you've just added another word. Okay, Lord of heaven's armies. Put that on a three by five card. Put it on your dashboard. Put it on your mirror. Put it on the refrigerator, wherever you see it. And you remember, this is the one who can keep his promises. This is our God. This is the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And 2 Samuel 7 is a great 
picture of how God keeps his promises. Secondly, the assurance of God's promise is rooted in the objective truth of God. It's not on experience or feelings. The old hymn, this was, I just read this recently. The old hymn declares that biblical Christianity is standing on the promises. Cultural Christianity is sitting on the premises. <laughs> That's great. Psalm 119, O oh Lord, your instructions endure. They stand secure in heaven. Nothing is thwarted God's promise to David. Nothing. Not the Babylonians, not the Assyrians, not the Romans. No. Nothing is thwarted it. The response. So you see the certainty of God's promises. You have the assurance of God's promises. The response to God's promises entails humble gratitude. The hymn, Now Thank We All Our God, for the three of us who know it in this audience. Now Thank We All Our God was penned by Martin Rinkhart. You say, I don't know who that is. Well, let me tell you. He served as a pastor in Eilenburg in the 1600s when the, the, the Black Plague, the Great Plague, came through. There were four pastors in town. All three died. He was the only one left. Well, one of them left, but he was the only pastor left standing. He was performing thousands of funerals, including his wife's. And he pins these words. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom the world rejoices. Who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Oh may the bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us, to keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills of this world into the next. Oh, that's someone who understands the promises of God and responds in great humility even in the midst of great crisis. The German pastor understood that God keeps his promises. And 2 Samuel 7 reminds us that we don't always see the big picture, but the architect of the universe has a plan. It's a glorious plan with, that's eternal and loving insight. And the beauty is, he allows us to be a part of it. Who am I? The demand of God's promise is the last there in your notes, and it requires faithfulness as we wait patiently on the Lord. As I mentioned earlier, David gets to the end of his life, and in 1 Chronicles 22, he hands the baton over to his son Solomon, who will build the temple. Listen to what David says to Solomon. My son, I really wanted to build a temple to honor the Lord, my God. But this was the message the Lord said. You've spilled a great deal of blood and fought many battles. You must not build a temple to honor me for you have spilled a great deal of blood in the ground. Look, you will have a son and he will be a peaceful man. I will give him rest in order to him to do this. And he says that Solomon, I've been told you're going to build the temple. Now look, David says, I made every effort to supply what is needed to build the temple. And it's a laundry list. It's huge. So I, I've gathered all of this together so that you can start. Now seek the Lord your God. Listen to what he says to Solomon. Young people, listen to what he says because it's vital. 
Seek the Lord your God wholeheartedly and with your entire being. That was David. Oh, yes. And we're going to see next couple weeks the, the wheel falls off the tricycle. <laughs> he makes some really bad decisions. Some argue that the sin with Bathsheba was committed before 2 Samuel 7. Only accentuating God's grace even more. But regardless, the Lord knew he was going to have the sin with Bathsheba. And he still extends the promise. Wow. Seek him with your whole heart. Get up and build the temple of the Lord your God. Then you can bring the ark of the Lord's covenant and the holy items dedicated to the Lord's service into the temple that is built to honor the Lord. The certainty of God's promises is based upon God's character. The assurance of God's promises is rooted in the objective truth of his word. The response entails humble gratitude and the demand requires faithfulness. David displays that in this glorious text and as we will continue in our, our study of the life of David. But what a joy for us as followers of Jesus, is it not? <laughs> the covenant that he has made with us through Christ, his son, the Davidic king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. But because in it we see how incredible you are. The links you will go for your people. I love what you said to David. Hey, I was there with the Israelites from the get-go. You're not telling me anything I don't know. <laughs> and David, I'm with you. And you have promised to those who follow hard after you, those who know you as their Savior, you have said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And Lord, there's some sitting here this morning that have never started that journey. They don't, they don't know what it means to have a relationship with you because they've never placed their faith in Christ. For some, they've gotten lost. That yeah, they've placed their faith in you, but they've wandered quite a bit. Veered. And Lord, that, I pray this morning that they would bend their knee to you and realize the, the sweetness the joy that comes in having a walk with you and allowing you to lead. Father, we thank you for your promises. We rest in those, knowing because of who you are and what you have done through your son Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray.